I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up. We're also going to talk about the debacle that is supposedly called the debate that took place on Tuesday night in Cleveland, Ohio, between President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. We're also going to talk a little bit about the content, but more specifically about some of the elements that came out of the debate in the fact that democracy seems to be hanging by a thread these days. And then after that, we've got a wonderful interview with a political science professor. He's an Professor Emeritus from Owachita Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, Dr. Hal Bass. So stay tuned. You won't want to miss it. Autumn, how are things this week? It's not like anything took place at all this week. No, you know, typically when Josh and I put our kids to bed, we like to tune in to grown-up television <laughs> where people aren't throwing tantrums and interrupting and generally just, you know, disregarding all the rules. You must be alluding to the, you know, um, my goodness. Uh, Of course, we're talking about the presidential debacle, as I have been calling it, that took place Tuesday night in Cleveland, Ohio, between President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. Um, There wasn't a whole lot of hope going into the debate that anything of substance would be discussed, but nobody, and I mean nobody, predicted the, I'm going to say what, I'm going to quote Dana Bash after the debate. She said on live television for CNN that this was nothing but a shitstorm, and I think she was right. It was a debacle and a half. Nobody predicted that. No. Um, And I'm going to steal his thunder because we're going to throw the the Hal Bass interview after this part. He called it the unpresidential debate. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, that's just exactly what it is. It, um, you knew that it was going to be a lot of talking over one another. You knew that there was going to be, you know, red face and pontificating and all those things. I didn't anticipate the uh, racist dog whistle. Oh, it was not a dog whistle. In fact, uh, what you, and what you're alluding to is the the moment in the debate where Chris Wallace, the moderator, asked President Trump to denounce white supremacy, and he pretty easy. Let me try it, Mitch. Yes, Autumn. I denounce white supremacy. I denounce it. Autumn, I think it's really bad. I would like to echo your words, and I too would like to denounce white supremacy. See, right there. Right there. <laughs> you're right. It it's wasn't that hard. Right Uh, Well, in response to that question, President Trump started this diatribe and asked for identification of a white supremacy group, which Biden then uh, threw out the Proud Boys. And President Trump used this language, the Proud Boys. They just need to stand back and stand by. That was his words. And afterwards, there was scenes from Proud Boy watch parties. And you mentioned Dog Whistle. As soon as he said that, some of these groups stood up and howled like dogs. So this was, in their opinion, a call to arms. Mm -hmm. 
a call to arms to take care of what President Trump identifies as the radical left, and more specifically, Antifa. But generally, this is the President of the United States calling for citizens to take up arms against other citizens. That is appalling and terrifying. Yep, it is. You know, I care about politics. I care about religion. I also care a lot about parenting. And so I follow some parenting Instagram accounts, and one of them posted um, a quote today that said, an escalated parent cannot de-escalate an escalated child, meaning that when your kid is at a fever pitch, it's your job as the grown-up to, even if you're feeling angry, even if you're feeling at the edge of all your emotions, you have to be the adult. Mm. And the only way to de-escalate a child who is, you know, just at their wit's end is with calm. And it's the exact same. How do you de-escalate a fever pitch country with a president who is just constant escalation? That, that's what he thrives on. Right. And that's what, you know, some uh, of the analysts afterwards said that was exactly his tactic. I have a hard time believing this, that he did this consciously um, because I don't think he's that intelligent. But the strategy seemed to be that he was just going to cause such chaos and, de- and, and escalate uh, this nonsense to such a degree that people would just turn off the television and tune out. Now, I know he's all about ratings, but what his hope is is that people would disengage from the process because you heard a lot of people afterwards saying, yeah, Trump was absolutely ridiculous in the way he acted during that debate. But, you know, Biden wasn't that much better either. And it was like, okay, if you had somebody that was lit up on fire next to you, how are you supposed to stand there and, per, you know, and try to make an articulate, uh, rational argument for your positions when the person next to you is on fire, causing all this mayhem? And the juxtaposition that is killing me right now is I have so many conservative friends, and I do my best to leave their voices on my social media when I can because I think it's important to listen. I try not to just have an echo chamber. And so many of them are posting after the debate, I'm for law and order. And I'm like, what about law and order and following <laughs> rules did you just witness on Tuesday? That was the, that is the antithesis of law and order. Right. And what they mean when they say law and order, it is their interpretation of law and order. It's kind of like right. when it's kind of like when fundamentalist uh, Christians say, "Your problem's not with the with me; it's with the Bible." And what they really mean to say is that my argument is really against their interpretation of the Bible, but they want to make it about the Bible and and me. That's not the case. And same mm-hmm. thing with law and order. You know, law and order. Uh, is such a volatile term because what they mean when they say that it's their interpretation of the law and their application of the law. It doesn't, nobody ever says that I'm for justice when they say they're for law and order because justice is quite different than law and order. Another thing that came out of the debate that was horrifying was when the president called on his supporters to visit polling places to keep an eye on voter fraud. And time and time again, we have had commissions and studies talking about voter fraud in this country, 
and it is minute. The president's allegations are false. Mm -hmm. And calling on uh, people like the Proud Boys to show up at polling places is a direct call for voter intimidation. Again, mm -hmm. trying to discourage people not to go to the polls and vote or not mm -hmm. to trust the system. Uh, and in this case, voter vote by mail, not vote. Because, I mean, it really is, it's simply voter suppression. He's trying to yeah. suppress the votes. And still spreading, you know, misinformation about the mail-in option as well, which mm -hmm. has been, it, it's fine to mail in your vote. I mean, I learned it a lot of times, but it's fine <laughs> to mail in your vote. And not to mention that, you know, we're also sort of still in the middle of a global pandemic and crowding the polling places is going to put people who are already nervous about the pandemic in a crowd that's, that's not even necessary. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, when he says things like this and he makes claims like this and spreads this vitriol throughout the country, it reminds us how delicate our democracy is. Mm -hmm. You said it off, uh, off tape a moment ago, but your husband uh, is a graduate, a, a law graduate from University of Oklahoma. You worked at the University of Oklahoma Law School for many, many years. And so a lot of your friends are lawyers or scholars within the law, uh, the field of law. And tell our audience a little bit about what they say about how fragile our democracy is. Well, it is. You know, even when we first start out our little baby lawyers and we bring them in and we swear them in to the profession of law, it's sort of like the, the white coat ceremony for medical doctors. And one thing that they give them is a leather-bound copy of the Constitution. And, you know, some of the most famous lawyers in our state and our region would come in and charge to them um, how delicate the Constitution is. It is just a document. And if you don't have people who understand it, you know, frontward and backward, understanding that it can change, it can adapt, but it's a very delicate balance. And if you don't have a close eye on it, if you sit back and you're apathetic, democracies crumble every single day. And ours is hanging on by a thread. Yeah, I mean, again, um, hearing what the president said, uh, voter intimidation, voter suppression, uh, a call for citizens to attack other citizens or to deal with them. Um, mm -hmm. And we, a lot of people, you know, that support President Trump will say that's hyperbole or he was exaggerating. And all you have to do is point your finger at Lafayette Square. Mm -hmm. That showed the world what President Trump was willing to do for himself when he turned federal troops against peaceful protesters in Lafayette Square in order to walk across the square to take a photo in front of the church holding a Bible was terrifying. Mm -hmm. And if he's willing to do that, which he has done, then he's willing to go another step. And mm -hmm. so, yes, our democracy right now hangs in the balance. And it is time now not to withdraw. It's time not to disengage. 
but to be involved. And if you're a Republican, if you're a Democrat, I don't care. What I care about is that you are part of this process and that you stand for principles. And even if I disagree with your principles, let us do it in a way where decency, compassion, and compromise can take place. Because the only way to move this country forward out of the quagmire that we find ourselves in is good people must come together to take good steps forward. Speaking of good people, everyone would want to say tuned. Absolutely. We've got a wonderful and delightful guest, Dr. Hal Bass, Professor Emeritus from Ouachita Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, is our guest today. He is a poli-sci expert, uh, especially with presidential politics and party politics, and he has a fascinating view on what happened Tuesday night as well as a great assessment of where our country is and where we can hope to go in the future if we just get involved and do the right thing. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and our guest this week is Dr. Hal Bass. Dr. Bass is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Ouachita Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Dr. Bass was born and grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas. Oh my goodness, we got another Texas uh, person with us. <laughs> he received his undergraduate degree from Baylor University and his graduate degrees from Vanderbilt University. His primary scholarly interests have been presidential party leadership, political party organization, campaigns and elections, and Southern politics. He has authored historical dictionary on American political parties, along with numerous articles dealing with these topics. He has been active in professional organizations, most notably the Southwestern Social Science Association, which he served as president. He received numerous teaching awards at Ouachita over the five decades in which he taught. Hal also serves as a strategic advisory board member for us here at Good Faith Media. Dr. Hal Bass, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. It's a delight to be here. Well, Hal, what we do at the beginning of every interview during this pandemic is really just ask you how you are doing, how's your family doing. Hopefully everybody is healthy. So far, so good. Uh, Obviously, people at my age are among the most vulnerable to the virus and its effects. But apart from that, people of my age are probably better situated to handle the discontinuities mm. that we've all experienced over the past several several months. Uh, far more than family with children at home, far more than families where you are under you know work stress situations so so yeah we've been in good in, in good stead we really have we're very thankful for our blessings good well i'm glad you and and everybody is, are healthy great so mitch mentioned in his introduction of you that one of your expertise topics is presidential leadership which is sort of an oxymoron these days <laughs> um <laughs> can you can you tell us a little bit about, well, first of all, did you watch the presidential debate? Oh, wow. I was just going to jump right into the deep end, Hal. I mean, just, just I mean, right in there. I mean, yeah. I watched them. I watched it. Uh, I have watched them since 1960. Wow. And uh, more recently, since 1976, when it became 
a standard feature of presidential campaigns. Uh, I would characterize this one as an unpresidential debate. Mm. Yeah. Um, it was sad. Yeah. It, it was it was very very disappointing uh, from a a civic perspective. What we want from debates are to give voters a chance to assess candidates' character and their proposed policies. And the format and the conduct of this particular debate was, of all the debates I've seen, the least productive. Wow. Now, John Meacham, uh, the great historian from Vanderbilt, uh, is described... Tuesday night's debate as the lowest moment in presidential politics since Andrew Jackson's racist policies. Now, that's saying a lot because we've got Nixon Watergate, we've got Clinton Lewinsky, we've got all three years of the Trump administration behind us now. How how in the world have we descended so low in our political discourse these days? I think that there's two factors that need to be mentioned. One is heightened polarization. Mm. What we mean by that is within the traditional two parties, we have come to a time when there is unprecedented internal cohesion or coherence within the parties. And at the same time, extraordinary separation or division between the parties. Another related factor, I think, is negative partisanship, whereby we maybe are not so much thrilled with our person, our candidate, our nominee, as we are utterly off-put by the opposition. And I think between those two, it makes it very, very difficult for folks to see a common vision, to see a common ground, to see arenas for possible compromise and moving forward in ways that would satisfy uh, not everyone, but mm-hmm. but most most folks. Mm-hmm. I just think the structural environment in which we find ourselves today is a uh, is one that's very difficult to achieve civic virtue. And then I think we have in President Trump an unprecedentedly disruptive president and presidential candidate. And I think that contributes to the the disarray we find ourselves in today. How would you say would you say it's fair to assess because I think this is an interesting line of questioning and conversation that we're going down. Uh, because you know, when I talk with groups, um, and the, the topic of faith and politics comes up. Um, we look at elections, and they've always been divisive. There's always been uh, divisive rhetoric in our politics. And I often talk about the election of 1800 between Adams and Burr and, and Jefferson, which, I mean, there's some really strong language that was used uh, during that election of 1800, which was, you know, at the beginning of this country, um, or the beginning of the, uh, the United States. And, and, Looking over the course of history, there's always been a, an element of divisive rhetoric, of name-calling, but this, talking to historians, feels a lot different. 
And it seems to have evolved, especially over the last few decades. And I was reading an article in the Atlantic not too or long devolved. ago. Or <laughs> devolved. Or right. devolved. Yeah, you're right. That's probably a better way of putting it. Devolved. Uh, I was reading this article in the Atlantic about uh, the insertion of Newt Gingrich into the political system. And it wasn't just Newt, but this it was this ideology of political conquest that there was no longer any room for debate and compromise, but it was to destroy, not only win, but to destroy your political opponent. Would you agree that that's where we are today? We're in this, this yeah, conflict. I, I think we moved in that direction. I make a, I make a couple of points. Mm-hmm. Uh, I refer back to my previous remarks about polarization. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, Democrats had to reconcile internal divisions, which they knew allowed Republicans to appeal to certain folks in the Democratic fold and vice versa. I think the polarization has purified, if you will, the parties and made them less needy less in need of looking uh, to to satisfy contending factions or elements within their own party and made it easier to demonize the other party because none of your people mm. are sympathetic to, to that. But I also think that the media plays a very, very important role in this. You mentioned the election of 1800 and the vitriolic uh, rhetoric Mm-hmm. This spew forth from the Democratic, Republican, and Federalist newspapers mm-hmm. of the day. But the penetration of those remarks to the populace was limited. Mm. I think particularly in the rise of electronic media and now social media, uh, when the trees fall in the forest, everybody hears them. <laughs> everybody hears the noise Right here. I think that penetration of message um, far and wide has contributed to the the present unpleasantness. Mm-hmm. That's very well said. Very well said. So something that I hear a lot from folks, I'm um I am an ancient millennial, so I'm like the cusp of the millennial generation. Um, and I sort of like don't fit in in either space, but Something that I hear a lot from my contemporaries is, you know, on a macro and a micro level. So sitting at the Thanksgiving table and interacting with our world at large is it seems that the Republican Party has really clung to, especially since 2016, um, white supremacy. And, you know, when you hear things like, well, we can disagree, but we can still sit down and have, you know, a conversation. We can still make allowances for one another. We can still hold space for each other's opinion. Um, it feels like racism is, is just a bridge too far for that. And I don't know if that's isolated to us or if, you know, everyone is feeling that way, but what do we do with that? Well, the historic way that Madison put forward in the Federalist Papers to deal with it was to bring more and more folks into the conversation with the expectation that there would be, because of 
the diversity of the population, difficulty in finding essentially a faction that could ever get enough support to move this particular agenda forward, that all these diverse interests would by definition have to compromise with each other. One of the things we're seeing in the contemporary political scene is a sustained effort by a minority to govern mm. here and to not reach forward. I think that this has happened again to, to beat an old horse because of the polarization mm -hmm. that has occurred. Um, but I do think that the parties have become, on the Democrat side, much more racially inclusive, and on the Republican side, much less racially inclusive with regard to that particular faction of that particular division mm -hmm. within American society. And there's far less cross-cutting cleavages in the Republican Party these days to pressure the central voices away from the agenda that they are pursuing. Mm -hmm. um, there's just less, less stress and strain within the coalition where, as we all know, originally the Republican Party was the party that appealed mm -hmm. to the African-American vote. Mm -hmm. In American society, how, that, that is, is not. As you mentioned, Gingrich hadn't been the case really since the mid '60s, right? But but certainly since the since the '90s. Now, how this is a fascinating uh, topic that you bring up because um, over the last couple of days since the debate, uh, or which I've defined as the presidential debacle, um, that what happened on Tuesday night was an was an attempt, either subconsciously or consciously to basically throw mud on the entire system. And if people get turned off by the entirety of politics, then they will disengage. And when they disengage, that benefits a certain party. Now, where I'm going with this is that um, your comments about there doesn't seem to be this this polarization, um, and I don't really like this word, but the, the tribalism that we've seen uh, arise uh, more recently, that there is really, in both parties, a base that is not looking to broaden that base at all. Um, they're stuck in their ideological um, uh, arenas, and... You know, there's certain states that are now considered blue states, certain states considered red states. And the way, especially on a national level and presidential elections, uh, it's all has to do with the, the electoral college, that as long as they can get people to turn out in a certain amount of states and get their base and then suppress, you know, turnout, then they can win the presidency. Is there hope that we can return to a time where there's honest and true conversation taking place and that there, are, and I use this term broadly, progressives in both parties that are willing to make compromise to compromise in order to move the country forward. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm not much of a forecaster. 
uh, <laughs> I've got 2020 hindsight. I don't, I don't look, look, look forward with, with, with the best of it. Mm-hmm. But, but let me just pick up on what I think was a very, very cogent point that you just made in terms of the strategies that parties and candidates pursue mm-hmm. in campaigns. And breaking them down to the, the I think, to a pretty simple uh, level, campaigns are about mobilization, campaigns are about persuasion, and campaigns are about suppression. Mm. So the question is, which emphasis are we going to see in a campaign? Mm. If you look at Tuesday night, if you have to look at Tuesday, <laughs> Tuesday night, um, it strikes me as pretty obvious there were there were two different approaches on stage. The president's strategy clearly combined mobilization and suppression. What he was trying to do, consciously or subconsciously, and I, I'm not a psychologist right, sure. here, he was trying to mobilize his base and make sure that they would turn out uh, in extraordinarily high numbers to enter, wanted to energize them. At the same time, his demeanor, it strikes me, was clearly designed to alienate citizens who were already disgusted by what they had observed to be an unseemly process in hopes of getting them not to vote. Mm-hmm. Of course, when you study campaigns, you realize that that's the effect of negative ads. No one likes negative ads, but they work. Not <laughs> exactly. in terms of persuasion, right. but in terms of suppression. suppression. Yeah. This was a huge negative ad that we had. Yeah. Now, if you look at the Biden approach on Tuesday night, what he was about was mobilization, throwing some, some, some red meat to the, to the base, mm-hmm. but also persuasion, trying to reach out and find some common ground. And the, the, the one he left out in his approach was the suppression. Mm-hmm. But, but of the three, each of them used two. Mm-hmm. But, but there was always one missing. Sure, sure. Now, okay. where do we go from here? Uh, I think it's going to depend in part on the outcome. Mm-hmm. I do think Biden's instincts and Biden's inclination are to try to find common ground. In the 47 years he's been on the public scene, Mm -hmm. 48 years now, I think that's been a pretty consistent theme for him. Now, whether he can pull that off amidst the structural challenges that that are present, um, I don't know. But I think he's going to give it, if you will, a good faith try. Ah, there you go. (laughs) Now, it strikes me again, having observed President Trump over the past four years in the in the public political arena, that he is much less interested in finding common ground and much more interested in a, a divisive approach that does energize his supporters within mm-hmm. the electorate mm-hmm. and places him in a position to be their voice. Be yeah. their, be their champion. How do you, the elected outcome is going to 
going to give us the answer to the question you posed. Right. You hear a, a lot of responses and, and a lot of comments by pundits and journalists uh, and, and very well-respected pundits and journalists talking about the constitutional crisis that is looming or that we're currently in as a country. Uh, and then a, a larger uh, question, especially if the election is contested. Um, as Autumn said a moment ago, the president, uh, during the debate, uh, you know, would not denounce white supremacy. But in the same breath, he was also calling for his supporters to go to polling places to watch voting take place, which certainly seemed uh, a tactic of voter intimidation. It also seems as though he is setting the stage to invalidate any result that does not lead him to be the president of the United States for the next four years. Are we in a constitutional crisis? Is democracy as we know it hanging in the balance? I try not to be alarmist. Right. And I try not to over overreact. I think it is fair to say that our constitutional norms and our constitutional values are being challenged at this moment more than at any time since the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I remain optimistic that we will not just survive this unpleasant moment, but that we will move beyond it and uh, reorient ourselves in a more traditional fashion. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of it is going to depend if the election results turn out in Joseph Biden's favor. And if Donald Trump loses, it's going to depend on how Republican Party elites respond. Mm. I think we know how President Trump is going to respond right. if he if he loses. I, I think he's pretty clearly signaled mm -hmm. that. Uh, and I think you did point out the the two moments that will be remembered from the debate. That was the refusal to um, condemn white supremacy, denounce white supremacy, and the refusal to commit to acknowledging or accepting the legitimacy of the outcome regardless. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the real question is, what will Republican elites do? What sort of signals will they give to the Republican constituency and the conservative constituency out there? And I would I would include ideological leaders as well as Republican leaders. Right. What will conservatives say yeah. here? Yeah. Uh, and I have perhaps a naive hope that President Trump will be out on a limb relatively by himself among elites when the results come in, if that is the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it, I think if his hold on the Republican and conservative voice remains as strong as it has been 
over the past four years, then I do think we are in a much, much more precarious position. Uh, but the way out that I see yeah. is once, if the results are uh, accepted by Republican elites, the trouble be out on him by himself. Sure. So, Hal, let's move away from the debate and the election right now, and let's move up to the 30,000-foot view of faith and politics. Starting next week at Good Faith Media, we will be hosting three forums addressing faith and politics. As a Baptist political science professor, can you offer some of our listeners the proper relationship, or try to define the proper relationship between faith and politics? The comment I would make is that I have been distressed with some empirical evidence that's been coming out over the past several years about the relationship between faith and politics in this sense. The way I understand it, our faith is foundational. And our faith informs our politics. Politics is about values and the values we try to express and impose, if you will, in the political arena are those that are grounded in our, in our faith traditions, our faith principles. What we're seeing is at least some suggestive evidence that in recent decades we've seen something of reversal. And it is, it is our politics that is foundational mm. and our politics is informing our faith mm -hmm. here. Wow. And my hope would be that as that this, that this is a temporary blip and it is not something that is institutionalized because as I understand it from my perspective, the, the earlier formulation is the more appropriate one. It is the faith that is foundational for us. It is the politics that extends outward from it with the recognition that politics is a realm that calls for us to be willing to engage with people of other faiths and people of no faith mm -hmm. in ways that do advance the common good. Mm -hmm. um, I fear when we reverse it, faith is the big loser. In the, and history, the history has taught us that. I mean, history has taught us that when politics, regardless of, of the country or the time period, when it drives uh, the ideological and applicable, applicable uh, realms of society, then religion suffers. It's always suffered <laughs> uh, at the hands of, of, of power and, and politics. Uh, but, you know, we've seen uh, circumstances throughout history, such as the civil rights movement, that was deeply embedded and driven by faith. And we just lost one of our great Baptist uh, heroes in John Lewis. And it was out of that deep religious conviction uh, that he fought for civil rights and he fought, fought for voter rights. I mean, that, that to me is the perfect example of uh, faith being foundation that 
that drives your politics, that you know, that, that guides your your political ideology. Uh, I fully agree. Mm-hmm. John Lewis is a hero. Yeah, yeah. So. Absolutely. Well, Hal, this has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, Autumn and I could probably just talk about this for the rest of the day, and and mm-hmm. uh, uh, but uh, you've been been a great help. Thanks for. Uh, going in on this. Uh, we called you earlier in the week and said, hey, we want to hold off on the interview until after the debate. Um, some people may want to question my wisdom in doing that. <laughs> but uh, we all survived, got through, uh, and, uh, and you know, we're, we're in this together. And uh, we, we've got to find some common ground to, to move the country forward. And having people like you out there educating us and informing us is a great appreciation. And thank you so much for being part of Good Faith Media. Well, at the end of every interview, Autumn sweeps in with a final question. So Autumn, take it away. Absolutely. Our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of our conversation today and just our world right now, what is your more to tell? I would hope that we could come away from this campaign season with an outcome that will allow us to move forward together, uh, to recognize that we are a diverse people with diverse values who need to find a way to go forward together. Not that everyone's going to be satisfied with everything, but to recognize that we do have things in common that we have ignored in recent years and to rediscover the connections, the ties that bind us together as a people. And I am optimistic that there are seeds planted in this dry season that we're in that can uh, grow and can flourish as we move forward. Very well said. Dr. Hal Bass, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Ouachita Baptist University in Arkansas. It has been a delight, sir. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your commitment and service to Good Faith Media. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Well, as always, we want to thank uh, our listeners for joining in this week at Good Faith Weekly, and we want to invite you back next week. But before that, we also want to invite you next Thursday at 1 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, 12 o'clock Central Standard Time, on our Facebook Live feed at Good Faith Media. We are going to be hosting our first forum on faith and politics, and we've got three wonderful panelists lined up. And it's going to go on for three weeks. will not interrupt one another. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Or I'll turn the mic off. I'm moderator, so I'll turn the (laughs) mic off. Uh, But uh, yes, please tune in uh, next Thursday, 1 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, for our Good Faith Forum on Faith and Politics 2020. Until next week, we wish you well, and as always, practice good faith.